right, good morning. Can y'all hear me okay? Perfect. All right, well, welcome to our first class in this series on uh, evangelism. The class title is The Invincible Mission of God. Um, before we kind of jump into the class proper, I want to make a number of introductory remarks, uh, sort of like housekeeping things, nothing too serious, but just kind of give you a sense for how these will flow each week. Um, and then we'll jump into sort of the course outline and then today's class in particular. So first and foremost, uh, these classes will start at 9 a.m. for the next six weeks. They will be live streamed. Um, so hi, folks at home. Uh, if you are uh, unable to attend, they will be recorded the same place that we post our sermon. So you'll be able to sort of watch them in the same vein. Um, each class will have a handout. So hopefully you grabbed one as you walked in. If you everyone has one, that's great. Um, the handouts, even if you're a book note taker, uh, still a good idea to grab one. We'll list out the verse references we'll be going through, um, relevant quotes, the, the course outline, objectives. Still a good idea to grab it. Uh, if you are not able to attend a class and want the, the notes, uh, you have my notes or the handout, or if you are watching at home and want to get a copy of those things, uh, the simplest and best way uh, is to reach out through Faith Life. Want to uh, incentivize people doing that. So reach out to me, uh, Jason Kenny, via Faith Life, and I will make sure I get that to you. Um, give me your email address, and I'll make sure that if you're, especially if you're at home regularly, we'll email these out to you the day before. Um, it will be the day before, because these classes changed. I had to restructure the whole thing last night, so yeah. Um, good times. So uh, let's see. Uh, as we go through this class, I think you'll see that the intention is to be both theological and practical, but I guess as a heads up, we'll be moving from the theological to the practical as the six weeks go on. So it'll be a little heady at first, and then we'll get into some nitty-gritty detail stuff towards the end of the series. Uh, there is no required reading or homework or anything of the sort, um, but you will find me drawing from a number of sources as I, uh, obviously the Bible, but also extra biblical books um, that, uh, that inspire portions of the course. The two biggest contributors are uh, J. Max Stiles' Evangelism and then J.I. Packer's Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. Um, if you are looking to do reading on the subject, you could definitely do worse than those two. Uh, now, this is a class. It is not a sermon, um, and so it is intended to have a certain level of interactivity. Uh, so if you have a question, please feel free to raise your hand. Um, if there is a comment or an observation you have that's directly on point, also feel free to raise your hand, and we'll incorporate those things. Um, obviously, we have a time limit. If this goes two hours, I don't think the preacher following is going to really appreciate that. Um, so do self-police for time, please. Um, it becomes very awkward if I have to you know, cut you off, so please don't do that. Um, so if your question turns into uh, a mini dissertation, we, we probably should be careful about that. Um, let's see, ah uh, yes, so it's a class on evangelism. Um, and so obviously we want everybody here to be edified and encouraged as we end the series, but it would also be fantastic if there was fruit as a result. So there's a couple things I want to bake into the class um, to try to accomplish that in God's sovereign grace. And the first one is proactive prayer. So the beginning of each class, um, and I'm going to try to work my way around the room class by class, we'll pick one to four people or so, volunteers, no, I'm not going to call on you, you have to raise your hand. Um, but if there are people in your life in particular that are on your heart and mind that you 
uh, either are planning to preach the gospel to, have recently preached the gospel to, or really just are concerned about their salvation, um, would like to ask you to say your name, their name, their relation. And what we'll do is we'll pray for them at the beginning of each class um, and encourage everyone here in your regular time of prayer to be doing the same. So hopefully by the end of six weeks, we'll have gotten through most people, if not everybody in the room. Um, Likewise, if you are planning on any proactive evangelism, meaning, um, you know, Tom is going to sit down and have a conversation with a coworker on Wednesday, uh, that would be a fantastic time to raise that hand and say, this is what's happening. So we can be praying not only for that person, but also for that particular encounter. Um, We'll also have a little bit of time, again, you know, a couple of minutes uh, at the beginning of each class to have folks raise their hand and say, hey, I did preach the gospel this week and give us a a quick synopsis of how it goes. Um, I think it's encouraging to hear examples of people preaching, um, even if it goes poorly. Um, I I think your average Christian in evangelism over their lifetime will have a pretty poor batting average. Um, We should probably expect that. And if the only people who raise their hand and say, I preach the gospel, are the ones who said, and the person came to saving faith, it would probably actually be very few people saying anything and be probably pretty discouraging. So even if it's just an attempt and it went poorly, you got coffee thrown in your face, that's great, share it. Um, It's useful, it's encouraging to the rest of us. Uh, Let's see, oh, so two other pieces of, of housekeeping. One is at the end of this series, we are planning on hosting some door-to-door evangelistic outreach. Uh, There is zero obligation. Uh, You are not automatically signed up by virtue of coming here, so please don't feel like you are. Uh, But if you are interested in that, uh, let me know, uh, either through Faith Life or at the end or beginning of a class, and I'll make sure that we kind of put your name on a list, and then when it comes closer to doing that, We'll start arranging details. It'll be a Saturday or a Sunday, maybe one, two, three times, something along those lines. Um, so if you're interested in it, let me know. Um, but hopefully, as you're equipped through the class to go out and do it, we'll be able to put what we're learned in practice. And then lastly, um, I'm hoping we do more of these sorts of classes in the future. Uh, and so feedback is 100% appreciated. It doesn't have to be like on me. I'm not asking for, for personal feedback, although if you want to give it, that's totally fine. I'm more talking about you know, the, the topics and the level of detail and you know, those sorts of things that may help us as a church say we should you know, look at doing this sort of, of activity with the, with the body. Does that make sense? Any questions on any of that housekeeping stuff? Charity. It's just evangelism. Yeah, super simple. He is pithy, yeah. It's like 80 pages too, so it's a really short read. All right, so. Huh, I did not actually put that in the notes, did I? Thought I did. There you go, all right. Uh, All right, so here is what we're going to be doing. In your notes there, I do have a paragraph description of sort of the series or seminar. I'm going to read through it and then just kind of walk really quickly through what we're going to be talking about in each class. So the the seminar is about God's sovereign intention to bring about the salvation of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation uh, is implemented through the local church. This includes participation by believers through personal evangelism, which can take a variety of forms and formats. Evangelism is fundamentally God's work carried out by believers through God's intended means. There is a specific gospel message that must be clearly communicated, 
and believers can be helped by learning from the experiences of practice evangelists, including understanding common objections and reactions. So six weeks to unpack that. Um, it's, we could do this in 12, but that's what we're going to be looking at ultimately throughout the course. Uh, this first one is a prologemina, which is just a really pretentious way of saying introduction. Um, so we are just going to introduce the course today. Uh, we'll define what evangelism is. We'll talk about some fundamental presuppositions on the approach to scripture that we'll be using in the class that I want to be transparent about. Uh, we'll spend some time dispelling some really common and I think harmful evangelistic myths. Um, and then we'll end talking about our uh, motivations as evangelists. Next week, uh, the class is God the Evangelist. The intention there is to cover the larger biblical framework for evangelism. What we are doing here is not done in isolation. There is a larger work that God is doing, and our evangelistic efforts are a part of that. Um, and I think if we're ever going to be rightly motivated and, and really do what we're supposed to be doing, or privileged to be doing, we kind of have to see our place in that larger story. The third class will be on the sovereignty of God. We'll look at his sovereignty in general, uh, particularly in salvation, and then address some common objections and questions that come up. The next three classes are all uh, geared more towards the practical. If God is the one undertaking this larger work, if he is sovereign over it, what does that mean for us? Um, and so he has instituted specific means and methods for this mission. Um, and so we'll look at what those are, um, the, the purpose of prayer, scripture, uh, those sorts of things. The fifth class will be on the message preached. Evangelism fundamentally is communicating a message, so we'll, we'll look in detail as to what that is, and a couple of sermons and scriptures as examples to show us how we might think about preaching it effectively. And then finally, practical helps. This will be probably the most disorganized out of all of the six classes, um, meaning it just won't have much of a theme or a structure. But over the years, there's ways of thinking about evangelism, best practices, uh, helpful hints and tips, and those sorts of things. And uh, I'm going to try to just vomit those all over you. Um, that's also a great time, too, for those of you who are more practiced at it to be able to chime in and uh, you know, help the, the rest of us kind of think through this appropriately. So questions? that makes sense? We're all tracking kind of the, the intent and purpose? OK. All right, so let's start with prayer and some individuals. Who wants, to, who wants to volunteer people that we can be praying for today and this week? Yes. Awesome. Thank you for volunteering. Who else? What are their names? Sue and Kyle. Kyle. Sue and Kyle. Okay, so we have Elliot and Sydney, and we have Jen's parents, Sue and Kyle. One more. Who wants to be brave? Yes, Heath. All right, so Heath's parents. Heath, what are their names? Deanna? Deanna and Mark. D-A-W-S-I? Thank you for spelling that. Awesome. All right, well, let's go to our God in prayer. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this opportunity to just be around each other and in your word this morning. 
thank you for the glorious mission that you are engaged in in this world and thank you for our joyous place in it and I pray that today and our time together would be edifying and encouraging. I pray, Lord, in particular for the salvation of Elliot and Sydney. I pray for Jen's parents, Sue and Kyle, and then Heath's family, Diana, Mark, and Dossie. I pray, Lord, that they would repent and come to a knowledge of the truth. I pray that you would use us, Lord, in bringing that about, and I pray that you would Grant us the incredible joy and the encouragement of seeing those that we love repent and come to a, a knowledge of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so again, encourage you to be praying for those folks this week, and next week we'll pick different people. All right, so today's objectives, there are four. We're going to define evangelism. That'll be quick. I want to address two high-level presuppositions. We'll go through a number of evangelism myths and then end about talking or end talking about our right motivations in evangelism. So uh, I put the definition of evangelism there in your notes. Evangelism is simply the intentional verbal communication of the gospel to someone who does not or may not know Christ for the purposes of seeing them repent and believe. Evangelism is simply the intentional verbal communication of the gospel to someone who does not or may not know Christ for the purposes of seeing them repent and believe. That is literally all it is. Evangelism is a very broad term. Paul evangelized on his missionary journeys, and you evangelize when you uh, uh, preach Christ to your unbelieving parents. You can evangelize in a sermon, and you can do it at lunch. So evangelism is this broad term. When I use evangelize or evangelism, I'll be using it in that broad sense. Um, there will be synonyms that I use throughout the course, mostly because saying evangelism 100 times just gets really old. Um, so I will say, you know, preach Christ, proclaim Christ, preach the gospel, proclaim the gospel. Those are all synonyms with, for this broader term of evangelism. Uh, if you hear me use the term personal evangelism, that is meant to refer to our evangelism as individuals, what you and I might do to a coworker, friend, neighbor, family, etc. Uh, we use that to differentiate uh, other types of evangelism like missionary work. Questions on that? Does that make sense? All right. All right, so that was quick. Uh, on to our presuppositions. So, I'm going to spend some time here. Uh, evangelism is a fairly complicated subject in the scriptures, um, and so I want to be transparent about how we're going to be approaching some relevant passages uh, as we go throughout the course. So who can be brave and tell me the difference between, kind of to tee this up, a pres prescriptive text and a descriptive text in scripture? Who wants to be brave? Charity. You said that too fast, I couldn't get my set. Uh, yes, that's going to be loud. Uh, that is exactly right. So a prescriptive text is one that directs you to do something. It can take the form of an imperative, uh, pray without ceasing, for example. Uh, it also can be a declarative statement. Um, the churches of Christ have no other practice than this. It's not really telling you explicitly to do something, but it's not leaving you any freedom to do something different. Um, a descriptive text simply describes what is. It tells you that something occurred, it tells you that um, this thing happened, but it doesn't really necessarily infer that you ought to do something about it, you ought to follow that example, it just, it's describing reality. 
Uh, it is a standard time-tested interpretive principle that if you take a prescriptive text, rightly understood and rightly applied, it, it's binding on us. A descriptive text, however, generally is not unless there's reason to believe otherwise. Um, and if you're asking yourself kind of what, uh, what, what examples or how you might tell if a descriptive text is, is more than a simple description, um, here's, a, here's a real life example. So uh, there is no prescriptive text in the New Testament that says, when you preach the gospel, do it in groups. Doesn't exist. Um, however, when you look at all of the instances of evangelism in the New Testament, 90 something percent of the time, it's in groups. Uh, uh, solo evangelism is actually pretty rare. Uh, Jesus does it on occasion. You've got uh, Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, um, but Peter goes to preach Cornelius, it's in groups. Paul always goes out in groups, one exception, and persecution was the exception. Um, Jesus sent the disciples out in groups. Group evangelism in the New Testament is the norm. So you've got no prescriptive text that tells you thou shalt do this, but you have a ton of examples that sort of make group evangelism the norm. So, you know, the, the takeaway from that is that you, you, you know, we ought to look at those group examples and, I'm sorry, that, that, that consistent example and say, is there something here? Is there something here that might inform our practice? Is there, is there, you know, is there a reason why over and over and over and over again everyone is preaching in groups? Uh, is it an Acts? Is the apostle simply following Jesus' example that he gave? Um, are there practical reasons like safety? I mean, is there something that indicates why this is a normative practice and does that have any sort of impact or application to us? It may, it may not. We'll kind of cover this throughout the course. In fact, we'll cover it in a few minutes. Um, but you know, when you have, when you have descriptive texts and there's an overwhelmingly consistent example, uh, it should give us pause and it should make us sort of think through whether or not there's anything there that might actually apply to us. But the flip side of that principle and kind of why I'm bringing this up is just because Paul does something doesn't make it binding on us. Just because Paul does something a lot does not make it binding on us when it comes to evangelism. So there are going to be things that we look at, I think, throughout the course of this class where there are a number of examples, and we'll draw principles uh, from them, but it will not be described as thou must do this thing um, because they are descriptive texts, and it's, it's beyond, generally beyond the authority that we'd have to say that. Um, that does not mean, though, for the record, that you can't look at a descriptive text and say, wow, that's a great example. I would like to do that. Uh, do that with care and caution. There are some descriptive texts that you absolutely do not want to follow. Um, but absolutely, it's not wrong to go to a descriptive text and say, you know, that, that is something that is a good example. That is something that, you know, we ought to emulate to. Our second presupposition has to do with missionary work and personal evangelism. Um, if I took a poll this morning and I said, you know, show me two examples each of evangelism in the New Testament, I'm willing to bet that most of you would go to Acts. Um, Acts is, generally speaking, the best place to go. It's a great place to go. Um, the other place to look at evangelism in action is generally Jesus, but Jesus tends to have a fairly extraordinary interaction with people. Um, there's a lot there that is kind of hard to emulate and, and pretty unique. His interactions are also pre-cross and pre-resurrection, um, and there's some, there's some interpretive barriers there uh, to, to sort of just going directly to Jesus and, and using those as examples. So most of us tend to go to Acts. Uh, the, the difficulty with that is that evangelism in Acts is in a missionary context. And missionary work and personal evangelism are fundamentally different. Uh, personal evangelism, again, is me preaching the gospel to my sister over lunch. 
Missionary work is preaching the gospel to form a church. These are, you know, you're going to do these things in different ways because the outcome and the intention is different. Um, and so there's absolutely care and caution that we need to take in going to the book of Acts and saying, oh, this is how they did it. We're going to automatically just apply that to ourselves. But I think it's also fair to say that both you know, missionary work and personal evangelism, it's still evangelism. It still falls into that broader context. And so there are things that we can look at in the book of Acts and draw principles and application from. And you will see me doing that throughout this course. So um, these are the two big sort of presuppositions as we handle the scriptures together that I want to point out. Um, I didn't want it to look uh, like I'm selecting or picking and choosing different things from the Bible, because uh, that's not the intention. There is a thought process behind which passages we go to, and which ones we don't, and kind of how we draw out those things. Um, and I want to be transparent ab about that up front. This is probably the most complicated thing today. Are there any questions on that? Feel free to tell me or have me you know, re-explain something. No big deal if, if I miss the mark in the first time. That makes sense? See nods? Okay. All right. Cool. So let's then transition into some evangelism myths. <clears throat> evangelism myths. So I listed them all out there in your notes, everyone that I'm going to go through, um, but I'll make some comments as we go through them. So number one, evangelism is only for those with that spiritual gift or related, only educated or specially trained believers should be evangelizing. Simply not true. Any believer who understands the gospel can evangelize. It's done by any believer, not just those with a particular gifting. And usually when someone brings this up, in my experience, the root is fear. Uh, fear that you'll mess it up. Fear that someone smarter will say something that you can't refute. Fear that you'll get mocked or persecuted. And the reality is, Yes, that will happen to you. I promise it will at some point in time. Someone will say something you can't refute. Someone smarter will out-argue you. I mean, that, those, are, those are all going to happen. Persecution is very uh, potentially likely. Um, but the solution is, is faith and preparation, not avoidance. Uh, we shouldn't assign evangelism to a class of people who are particularly good at it. It is something that we can do you know, regardless of, of where you're at in your faith if you're, if you're a sincere believer. Uh, this next one I want to spend a little more time on, and it's the myth that evangelism just happens. So it can. Let's be very clear about that. In my life, I've had some extraordinary uh, occurrences where a person literally has asked to have the gospel preached to them. Uh, not in so many words, but pretty close to it. I've had conversations that are kind of going in one direction, and then out of the blue, they give like the perfect tee-up to a gospel presentation. It happens. It does that's pretty rare. You know, in my, in my entire life as a Christian, I can probably count that on two hands. Um, it's not something that happens weekly or let alone daily. Um, evangelism is something fundamentally that we ought to be deliberate about. I put a quote in your notes from Donald Whitney, which I'll read. Evangelism is a natural overflow of the Christian life. We should all be able to talk about what the Lord has done for us and what he means to us. But evangelism is also a discipline in that, what, in that we must discipline ourselves to get into the context of evangelism, which is a terribly confusing sentence, which he clarifies. That is, we must not wait for witnessing opportunities to happen. 
And I think the point he's making is that if we're not intentional about evangelism, it generally won't happen. Um, worse, in those 10 or so times I mentioned, a couple of them, I was not prepared for them. I wasn't thinking about evangelism. It wasn't something that was on my heart and mind. I was distracted in other things, and I completely flubbed them. Um, it just, you know, it happens. And so we want evangelism to be something that is on our hearts and minds, something that we are thinking about, something that we are purposeful and proactive about, that you're not just praying for um, uh, Dossie, but you're also praying uh, to, to be given opportunities to preach a Dossie and, and looking to do those sorts of things. Sorry to pick on you, Heath. Um, so again, be deliberate about evangelism. And I think it's really important, too, that there are benefits to doing so. Um, Obviously, there's the benefit to the people around you who you're preaching the gospel to, but there's benefits to yourself. Um, if you have an evangelistic focused mindset, you, you cannot do that without, without also having a gospel-centric mindset. Being focused on evangelism puts the gospel in front of your face on a daily basis, and there's tremendous spiritual benefits to doing so. Uh, there's a reason why people who tend to be pro-evangelism also tend to be more focused on Christ. If you've, if you've noticed that relationship, it's not an accident. There is a, a correlation between those two things. Uh, second, and related, when you have an evangelistic focus, you tend to see the world differently. That annoying neighbor goes from someone that you want to avoid to someone that you see as desperately needing Christ. It's harder to lust after that pretty girl when you see her as a person who is rushing towards hell. You start to see the world in terms of the story of redemption, and that has, again, also all sorts of benefits in our spiritual lives, too. So I can't emphasize enough or encourage enough, be proactive about evangelism. Uh, next one, evangelism is standing on a corner or otherwise preaching the gospel. No, you do not need to buy a bullhorn to be an evangelist. Uh, you don't need to buy a giant sign or twirl it on a street corner. Uh, evangelism is absolutely something that can happen interpersonally. You also do not need to build relationships with people before you bring up Christ. Um, I, I don't see any New Testament example that suggests that in any way, shape, or form. Um, it is not a requirement. And I want to be careful how I say this. I don't mean to, to slander anyone, but in my experience, that myth is also usually rooted in fear. Um, I think it's an attempt to soften the likelihood of persecution. Um, and I think, sadly, it results in less evangelism. If I have to build a relationship with you first, the question is, is how long and how good of a relationship? Um, but eventually, you know who are the people I have the hardest time preaching to? The ones I like and the ones that are in my life and I don't want to lose. That tends to be the harder group to preach to. A stranger on the corner that I'll never see again, I can preach all day long to them. But the people that I love, that's harder. Maybe I'm weird, and that's totally fine, but uh, I, I, think, I think building relationships tends to result in less evangelism than more. Uh, it's an oldie but a goodie. Preaching, evangel or preaching the gospel does not need words to happen. It's just, yeah, please. I thank you for the encouragement, Craig. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Uh, let's see. Yeah, preaching the gospel absolutely needs words. You can't do it without words. If you're, if you're, if you're trying not to use words, you're, you're just doing it wrong. Uh, evangelism should only happen from the pulpit, and believers should just invite non-believers to church. 
So be clear, it's really good to invite non-believers to church. Uh, we'll cover this in a future class, but the church itself is structured around the proclamation of the gospel. We'll go through in a class kind of what the church does on a Sunday morning, and it's just, if, it, if we're doing it right, it's gospel, 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 gospel. Um, but that's not what evangelism is. Um, so invite folks to church, but evangelism, evangelism is more than doing just that. Uh, evangelism uh, requires you to make bold confrontational statements like you're going to hell unless you repent. Um, I think we can have this image in mind that evangelism is some sort of confrontational event. You have to call out the person you're talking with boldly and confrontationally. Um, you can make those sorts of statements. Uh, there are certainly examples of them in scripture, but that's not necessary in order to evangelize. Uh, another one that I think comes up a lot is evangelism is the same thing as apologetics. I, I think sometimes it's easy to make the mistake of thinking that evangelism is defending the gospel or trying to argue someone to faith. Look, if you like to debate and you got four hours, go nuts. It's totally fine. Um, but it's not our duty to cite archaeological evidence that David exists or to quote Josephus to show that there's extra biblical sources for Jesus' existence on earth. Like that's not, that's not what evangelism requires us to do. You are not required to eliminate every objection or to refute um, uh, every scenario or to prove the validity of the message we present it. Uh, evangelism is an individual activity. Now, to be clear, evangelism absolutely can be an individual activity. Peter says to be ready to give a defense for anyone who asks about the hope that's in you, and he doesn't say phone a friend first. I mean, you can absolutely have individual evangelistic encounters. Do not hear me say otherwise, please. Um, but you can also do it with other people. And again, you know, there's a, there's a normative example in the New Testament about group evangelism, um, and there's benefits to it. It's encouraging. They can share the load. You learn from their example. You play off each other. Uh, if you're doing something like door-to-door, -door, it provides a measure of safety. Uh, preaching also helps take some of the nerds off, uh, nerves off when you are with somebody else. Um, in fact, I think if you are, certainly if you're doing missionary work, you really, really strongly ought to consider not being alone. But if you're going to do something proactive, like go to a park or go to a mall, it really is a best practice, I think, to invite someone with you and do that with a partner as opposed to entirely by yourself. But there's nothing wrong with doing it by yourself. All right, uh, next myth. Evangelism is fundamentally a straightforward verbal encounter. I had lunch with Jim, and I gave him a gospel presentation. I went through my 12-minute speech. That's evangelism. Uh, that is true. That is evangelism. If you did that, that is totally fine. I'm not saying otherwise. But it can take other forms. It doesn't have to be a presentation. Sitting down with a coworker every day and reading through the Gospel of John and explaining it as you go can also be evangelism. You can have slower conversation over time with people. You do not have to have a three, seven, 12 minute speech that you rehearse or some sort of system or process that you go through. It's not required for it to be evangelism. And for the record, I will not be teaching any particular system in here. The goal of this class is to equip you with the biblical principles and how to do it. Um, but how we do it on a day-to-day -day basis will really depend on you, the person you're talking to, their context, what they know, what they don't know, those sorts of things. There's no single way to do this. And then the last one, the guiltiest one of all, you are obligated to evangelize every person you meet or know. 
Um, it's not true. Evangelism is a privilege and it's a joy. You're not under some obligation to preach to every single person you come across. Um, and generally it is better if we think about evangelism as something that we get to do and not something that we must do. We are privileged to participate in this process. Um, I, I think in my experience when people turn it into some sort of burdensome obligation, bad things happen. Um, you end up essentially, in a lot of cases, justifying why you're not. And I think, again, in my experience, more often than not, evangelism tends to sort of take a nosedive. Um, and you excuse yourself from doing it as opposed to be looking for opportunities to do it. So again, you're not obligated to evangelize every person you meet or know. All right, that was like 12 different myths about evangelism. Any other questions or comments on any of that? Yes, Dan. So on uh, evangelism is the myth of evangelism being the same as apologetics. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It'd be good to say, too, like the point of apologetics is to get to evangelism, but they're not the same thing. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think that's fair. There's, there's absolutely a place for apologetics. Um, you can have an apologetic conversation that it leads into the gospel. I mean, all of those things are absolutely possible. I think the, the main point is to emphasize that you don't feel like you have to be able to, you know, regurgitate the case for Christ in order to preach the gospel to somebody. Um, and unfortunately, I think there are people who, who think they have to. But thank you. Yeah, that's a good point. Charity. That's like where presuppositional apologetics also falls into there. Yes, yes. And we will talk about that for sure. Yes. Your head. Um, but yeah, so presuppositional apologetics is, uh, it's, it's very Pauline, it's very Jesus, um, and we'll cover that in a future class, if you don't know what it is, which is fine. Other questions or comments? All right, we've got 10 minutes, and I got three motivations to go through. So there is the first one uh, in your notes there. Let's see how I framed it, yeah. Uh, we see our place in God's larger story and work and see that it is our privilege to get to participate in that work. Um, next week, we're, again, we're going to be going through God's larger story um, and what that looks like. And so this will have a little bit more context <clears throat> next week. But there's a quote from J. Max Diles that I also put there that is worth reading. And he says, sometimes we unwittingly motivate congregations with blunt instruments such as guilt. But we want church members to be motivated by what is taught in scripture and see their role as ambassadors of Christ, mediating between two warring factions with the offer of peace and reconciliation. So he's got 2 Corinthians 5, 20 and 21 in mind. We will absolutely explore that passage quite a bit later classes or later in classes. Um, but in the context of his book, he's really making two points. First, and, and sadly, and this is true in my experience, I've even done it. Uh, preachers, teachers in Bible studies, we, we tend to talk about evangelism as an obligation. The single uh, uh, most confessed thing in a Bible study is I don't evangelize enough. Um, it's the safest confession to make. It comes up more often than not. It's usually a smokescreen in my opinion. But uh, that it, it, you know, it, we, we, we turn evangelism in some, into some sort of obligation that we're doing or not doing and failing in. Um, and that really misses the point. Uh, his second point in that quote, his second point in the book in that section, and it's his main one, is that evangelism is something that we ought to think about as something that is huge and awesome that we get to do. We get to do it. 
And so again, that's our, that's our first motivation. We preach Christ because we see our place in God's larger story and work, and we see that it is a privilege to get to participate in his work. God is bringing about the salvation of people from every tribe and tongue and nation, and we get to be part of that. Um, an analogy might be helpful uh, <laughs> as a parent, and I'm sure every parent in this room or watching uh, will emphasize with this, but kids don't really like to do chores. Um, and by the way, if yours do, the next time we do a class on parenting, sign up to teach, please, because generally kids do not like to do chores. But when you invite your kid to do something unusual or grown up, there's a certain excitement that can happen. Uh, if I tell my daughter Reagan to make her own breakfast in the morning, she doesn't want to do it. But she loves to cook with mom. Uh, I've got pictures of Logan helping to push the lawnmower in the backyard. Who wants to bet money that if I told him to mow the lawn today, he would not want to do it? There's something inviting about being able to participate in, in mom and dad's work and what we're doing. Um, and in the same way, we, God is doing something big in the world. We love him. And so we also get to love what he is doing, and we want to participate in what he's doing in this world. And that's what our first motivation is getting at. We evangelize because we see our privileged place in the story. We love our Father. We love what he's doing, and we want to be a part of it. Um, and I think we see this play out in John 4, uh, 27 and 28. So turn with me there, pretty please. John 4, 27 and 28. I've got to go fast through these, um, so I will. <clears throat> but, um, oh gosh, no, I'm sorry. It's uh, 27 through 38. Mm. 27 to 38. So, he, so Jesus uh, has just finished preaching to the Samaritan woman uh, uh, earlier in the chapter. He's had a long, long conversation with her. The disciples had gone to get Jesus' food, and in 27 we pick it up, and it says, Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, What do you seek, or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And so they went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, at the same time, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has, has someone brought him food to eat? And Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. So again, context, Jesus has just finished talking to the Samaritan woman. The disciples come across this very unusual scene and they don't ask a single question. They marvel at it, but they don't ask a single question. This is like me coming home and seeing my wife juggling knives, who does not juggle and does not juggle knives, looking at it and going, wow, that's crazy. And then asking her, what's for dinner? Like, she is going to assume that I don't care about the knife juggling, and she is completely correct. Um, the disciples not asking a question evidences the fact that they're not really concerned about what Jesus is doing. They're more consu uh, consumed, no pun intended, with the food that they brought Jesus. Um, so the, the Samaritan woman goes back to the town, and she evangelizes her town, essentially. And she says, there is this amazing prophet who claims to be the Messiah. Come out and see him. And so the whole town 
starts coming out. Um, now, Jesus tells the disciples in verse 34 that he is fundamentally focused not on food like they were, but on the mission of God. And as the people are coming out in verse 35, he points out to them, and he describes this, this crowd of people as a field ripe for plucking. That's the work he's talking about. In verse 34, it's explicitly his father's work. God's mission is saving people from every tribe and tongue and nation. And not only was Jesus focused on that, but he was inviting his disciples into it. That's why he's saying all of this. He is telling them that he is focused on this mission, and they ought to be as well. But he doesn't describe it as some sort of chore or uh, drudgery. He says that it will bring them joy in verse 36. The sower and the reaper may rejoice together. Reaping is a gift. It is a joy. It is a privilege. Our Father is doing a work. Our Savior is focused on that work. We get to also focus on that work. It is a privilege and a joy to do so. Motivation two. We care deeply for God's glory. Uh, Turn with me to Acts 17. This one is shorter, uh, verses 16 and 17. Acts 17, verses 16 and 17. All right, so this says, Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogues with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplaces every day with those who happened to be there. So as we approach these these couple of verses, Paul has just uh, fled persecution. Um, That's why he's in Athens alone. As I mentioned earlier, he always travels with companions. This is the one exception that I've seen. Uh, He is separated from Silas and Timothy because of that persecution. They sent him on ahead so that he would be safe um, and he's waiting for them to arrive. So normally he would just, you know, not normally because this doesn't happen. He is preferring to wait to do anything. He's going to sit in the town. He's going to wait for them to arrive before he begins his normal evangelistic work, which is usually to go to the synagogues and, and then to preach to the Gentiles. But Luke is clear. It says his spirit was being provoked within him as he was waiting. Uh, provoked is a paroxuno. It means to sharpen. Um, it's an imperfect verb. And so what Luke is doing here is he's telling us that this isn't something that happened once. Uh, Paul is not just sort of seeing an idol and getting worked over it. He, he's just getting agitated in his soul as time goes on. He's getting agitated in his soul over and over and over again as he's looking at the idols in this city. Uh, Athens was a city full of idols. Uh, one ancient commentator, Pausanias, said that Athens had more images than the rest of Greece combined. Pliny puts it at about 30,000 statues in the city, plus whatever's in the home. This place is chock full of idols. Um, and so Paul is getting more and more bothered as he's in the city. And the picture of him is kind of like walking through the city and just, just getting stirred up. But he doesn't set them on fire or knock them down or cost people. His, uh, his, his, his action in result of this agitation is to preach. Verse 17 says, so he reasoned. Uh, that so in ESV and NASB uh, in 17 is also translatable as therefore. So he's getting stirred up. He's getting agitated. Therefore, he reasons. And that, that reasoned is also an imperfect. And so he's getting stirred up, constantly stirred up. And the result is a flurry of uh, evangelistic activity. Paul is preaching left and right is what, is what Luke is telling us. 
Paul saw God being replaced by false gods. He saw God being slandered. And when he saw God being neglected as the people preferred lies to the living and true God, he evangelized. And so I think we see Paul's motive on display here. He loved God. He sought his God's glory by preaching Christ and reasoning with people to abandon vain, empty, and worthless idols. I would like this to be my motivation too. I don't know about you, but I want this to be my motivation too. I want to look at the world around me like Paul did the city of Athens. And we're surrounded by false gods ourselves. It's not statues, uh, but it's, it's money and pride and power and fame and sex and comfort. Those are the things that we're surrounded with in America. And the God of this universe is slandered every single time someone pursues those instead of him. So my, my hope is that I would see, our, and I hope for you as well, is that we would see the world, our culture, our neighbors, the way that God sees them, and let that cause us to burn to preach Christ as well. All right, last motivation, and I'm out of time. Um, our last motivation is simple. It's axiomatically true. It's that we preach Christ because we love our neighbor. Um, <laughs> we're, we're, we're supposed to love them at least. Um, and, and the reality is, is you know, they, like we were apart from God's grace, they're, they're rushing headlong towards an eternity of pain and suffering. Um, every sin that's not paid for, was not paid for on Calvary, will be paid for individually in hell. Um, there's a quote here from Jonathan Edwards and his classic sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, that I think is just terrifying. He says, some of you have seen buildings on fire. Imagine, therefore, with yourselves what a poor hand you would make of fighting with the flames. If you were in the midst of so great and fierce a fire, you've often seen a spider or some other noisome insect when thrown into the midst of a fierce fire and have, and have observed how immediately it yields to the force of the flames. There was no long struggle, no fighting against the fire, no strength exerted to oppose the heat or to fly from it, but immediately stretches forth and yields, and the fire takes possession of it, and at once it becomes full of fire. Here is a little image of what you will be in hell, except you repent and fly to Christ. So of course, of course, we would say love is a motive in evangelism. As we see people rushing towards that faith, or at fate, obviously, we ought to want to preach the gospel to them and warn them. But I do want to end our time this morning by pointing out that this is, if we're honest with ourselves, probably more of a selective motivation for us. Um, mother, father, kids, uh, spouse, good, good friends, it's easy to want to preach the gospel to them because we love them. We, we feel like praying. We feel like preaching. It's a different story for our neighbors, uh, random people in line at the bank, the guy who takes 15 minutes to order a sandwich when you're in a hurry behind him. Um, oftentimes, we don't even think about preaching the gospel to those people. And the issue is, is really that we just are failing to love our neighbor in general more often than not. Um, and so for this motivation, I don't think I need to do a whole lot of work to prove to you that we ought to have it. You know, our, our work in our own hearts and minds is to love people more. Um, and going back to that point about proactive evangelism, to the extent that we can, I would encourage all of us to do our best this week to prayerfully try to see our neighbors, the person in the line at the bank or person cutting your hair or whoever you interact with, um, as someone who is made in God's image, who was rushing straight into God's terrifying wrath, 
and ask God for the, for the grace and the desire to, to see them that way and to bring Christ to bear in the situation. All right, we're done. Only, only four minutes over, not a big deal. Uh, next week, again, we're going to be looking at God's larger story on evangelism and our place in it. Um, so let's end with prayer, and uh, I'll sit down. Father, thank you again for this opportunity. Thank you for the ability and uh, privilege to be able to be part of your story. I pray that we would love your glory. I pray that we would see our place in it, and I pray, Lord, that you would give us hearts to love evermore our neighbor, evermore the random people that you put in our lives, that we might burn to preach Christ all the more. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.